Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. I am Christopher Hurtado, and with me is my co-host, Ben Peterson. Hello, Ben. Hey, Chris. And tonight... We're covering a lot of ground, more than we've ever covered before, and that's because we don't feel comfortable skipping anything. Now, I don't know if you've looked ahead, Ben, but as I thought about saying something like that in this recording, I thought, are we really committed all the way? I don't know what else there is that we might have to read that isn't assigned reading, but so far, right? Yeah. We're committed. Yeah. Yeah. We feel like we just need to have the context of the parts that were skipped, if nothing else, to talk about the parts that aren't skipped. And actually, I personally feel like we shouldn't skip anything. As a matter of fact, my daughter said today, Dad, what's the point of studying the Bible if you're not going to study all of the Bible? And I said, that's a really good question. She said, I'd like you to bring that up on your podcast. So I guess we will have to answer that for her and then let her listen to it. Yeah, that's a great discussion question. Yeah, we'll definitely go into that. So I think we're going to end up having a discussion about what scripture is. I think it's inevitable. And it's not like we haven't talked about this before. We'll definitely talk about that some more. So we're covering the required reading, the assigned, I said the required, none of this is required reading. We're covering the suggested reading, should we call it? The suggested reading of Exodus 34 through 35. And then what is it? Leviticus 1, 16 and 19. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, that sounds right. But... But we're not leaving out. The reason I don't know is because I just read it all. So I don't know. Yeah, we read it all. We read all of it. We read all of it so that you don't have to. Listen, I've been a professor. (laughs) This is how it works. I I read it all so you don't have to. And then you think you're spending time listening to this podcast. No, no, you're saving time. You're (laughs) saving time. Ben and I read more than we've ever read before for any given episode to record this podcast. And we're going to cover more chapters than we've ever covered before. So we're not skipping... Leviticus 2 through 15, 17 through 18, and 21 through 27, something like that. We read all of that. I read the King James. I know you did too. You probably read some NRSV too, or at least the commentary. And we both listened to and highly recommend Rob Bell's Blood, Guts, and Fire, which is an extended audio commentary, 12 hours. We listened to 12 hours of extended audio commentary from our beloved Rob Bell. I just love Rob Bell. Don't you love Rob Bell? Yeah, he's great. Yeah, I got to tell you, I listened to that before I read Leviticus. And so I listened to that and I thought, man, this is relevant. This is good stuff. You know, this is really good stuff. Wow, we really need this. And, and I get it. Okay, some of it's really strange, but I really get it. You know, and Rob Bill just has this way of making you feel comfortable with it. How's that? Comfortable? Yeah. Do you feel comfortable with it, Ben? Yeah. More comfortable. And so then you read Leviticus and you think, oh my gosh, <laughs> can he be here in person and hold my hand, you know? Yeah. (laughs) He made it look easy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so what we're going to do, though, you know, in covering all of this material an hour and a half is we're going to give an overview. You know, this is an introduction. 
And it's funny because we listen to Rob Bell for 12 hours and he says he's just skimming the surface and he points out multiple times that if you really want to go into this, you can go read XYZ books. Ben says, that's what it's like with me, right? Ben, every time yeah. uh, you ask me a question, I say, go read XYZ books. <laughs> it's a simple question. <laughs> and it's like my mother-in-law, when I would ask her, why did this happen in history? Well, to understand that, you have to understand this. And understand this, you have to understand that. And eventually you have to get back to Adam before you can know what's going on. So, you know, there's that. And then he also points out, just like, I know, Ben, you and I are Dante fans. We say that Dante fans, we love Dante too. Yeah, yeah. This is Dante Alighieri, La Divina Commedia, The Divine Comedy. And I've taught Dante with Travis Patton, who's been a guest co-host on this podcast. When we'd read a canto of Dante with students, you know, we'd have them tell us what they got out of it. And whatever you get, and this is true of the Bible too, and I think the church is really promoting this idea that whatever you get is for you, right? I mean, write it down. They're always telling it that in the manual. I rarely look at the manual. I just look at it to get what the reading is, right? But it always says, you know, write down your impressions. Yeah, read and write down your impressions. So we'd ask their impressions of the canto that we read, and, you know, sometimes they'd be in alignment with what Dante intended as we know it, you know, as amateur scholars of Dante. And sometimes the greatest scholars have no idea what Dante meant and your guess is as good as theirs. And so apparently with Leviticus, that happens too. Sometimes even the people have dedicated their lives to studying Leviticus. And by the way, there's something to that. It's worth dedicating your life to studying Leviticus, or at least it's worth it for someone to do it. I like the idea in Sharia and Islamic law that there is what's called far kifaya, which is a duty that is incumbent upon the community where it's just like somebody has to do it. Somebody has to be a doctor. Not everybody has to be a doctor, yeah. but somebody does. So it's good that somebody's out there studying Leviticus, but even among those guys and gals that are doing this, they just don't know. Some of the stuff, we just have no idea what's going on. Some of it's written in a way where it's just assumed that you already know what's going on. And we don't, we don't, we're so far removed from the context in which this is written in time and in culture and in space. And so many things are different. And yet there's so much here that's relevant. Now, of course, we're going to connect Exodus 35 through 40 with Leviticus. And we're actually going to have to issue a spoiler alert here because we've got to talk about what happens next. To give an overview of what we're going to go into, we come out of Exodus with the building of this, the, the last few chapters, right? We, we're building the tabernacle and we get a lot of detail about that. And sometimes I wonder, you know, who decides what chapters we read and what chapters we don't, because why did we read all this stuff? And if we're not going to read Leviticus, why not, you know, why read this stuff? But, you know, we get all this detail about how the tabernacle is put together. But the really important thing is not what is it made out of, but what is it for? And so when we go into Leviticus, we find out that what's being created here is, first of all, it's a recreation, right? Just like in Genesis, in the beginning, we have a creation. After Noah, we have a new creation. Now we have another, the people are brought out of slavery in Egypt, and they have to be a new creation, a new way of life, a new order, a way of ordering their lives. And so that's given in such exhaustive detail in what I can't help but compare to what is it? The manual of instructions, the church's manual of instructions. Yeah. Handbook of instructions. Handbook of instructions. Yeah. yeah. And you compared it to the white Bible for, for listeners who don't know what that is. Yeah. What we affectionately call the white Bible. It's the small little pocket manual, I guess you could say that missionaries carry. At least we did. I don't know if it's the same thing now. Surely it's been, you know, edited and changed and updated and revised and so forth, but there's, there's something like it still. 
And it's this small handbook of instructions for missionaries. And, you know, the context is you're a missionary, you've dedicated a certain amount of your time and life to this specific task in a specific place for a specific purpose at a specific time. And so there's all this context to it. And it goes into these very, very detailed things of what you're supposed to do, you know, down to like what time of day you're supposed to go to bed and when you're supposed to get up and how much time you dedicate to each specific task, right? So it gets very, very specific about a lot of things. And so that's what I thought of when I started looking at Leviticus. This is largely a priestly manual, right? So like if we could take our printing press or modern mass printing capabilities and transport them back in time, we would print a bunch of these books off and hand them out to all the priests. And it's like, this is what you reference when you're going to go do it. And, and the new guy, when he comes up to do the sacrifice, you know, he looks in the manual and says, okay, you were, we're doing this sacrifice today. And he looks at the index and he goes to that page number and, and he follows the instructions, right, on how to do it. And so there's a lot of that going on here. And that's why there's so much repetition in the steps of the different sacrifices and specifically what they're for and everything, because every instruction is meant to be an entirety of the purpose and everything built within that section, right? So you're repeating all of the same ideas over again. Yeah, I think the handbook of instruction comparison is that, but maybe the, the missionary manual or white Bible, as the missionaries officially call it, is even more apt. But, you know, these things are updated, right? They're updated. And as a matter of fact, we've updated the way in which Paul read the Jewish Bible, right? Uh -huh. Paul updated the way the evangelist read the Jewish Bible. And Matthew himself updated the way that the followers of Christ, the early Christians, would read the Jewish Bible. Yep. And so that's how we do it. So that's why we'll probably have this discussion about what scripture is and how it works. Because I think we think scriptures are a text, but it's really more of how we read the text, right? It's sort of this relationship that we have with the text mm -hmm. and with the other people who are, are a part of that community of people who have that same relationship to the text. So there's that. And, and so it does get very specific in that way. And another reason for the repetition you mentioned, Ben, of course, is that there wasn't a printing press and this was memorized. And one thing that gets repeated a lot that I think is a theme is that I am as the King James Version reads, the Lord your God, which you have the Lord in small caps. So this is standing in for the Tetragrammaton, which we can read Yahweh. We can say Yahweh, which is just adding the vowels from Adonai, our Lord, which by the way, is actually plural. We say our Lord, but it's really our Lord's. And so we give that voweling to the YHWH, the Tetragrammaton, and we say Yahweh, right? So I am Yahweh, the one who took you out of slavery in Egypt. I'm not quoting here, I'm putting it in my own paraphrase, right? I'm Yahweh, the one who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. And that's why you're going to live in this new and different way, different from the way you were treated when you were in slavery and different from the way your neighbors are doing it. You're going to be as Latter-day Saints think of themselves and are meant to be, just as the ancient Israelites were meant to be, a peculiar people. You're going to be different from your neighbors. You're going to do things differently from them. And so another explanation for some of the stuff that we see here is just this idea that we're just going to be different. I'm, I was supposed to bring this up. My wife said I should ask my daughter about some conversations she had about strange laws in the books. We can get into that too. I've heard of some strange laws that are still in the books today. And these things come up because people do things, right? So for example, I read that you can't, I think it's in Wyoming, that you can't transport cattle in a school bus. Mm. Uh, that's a law. Why? 
because somebody did it and it was a problem, right? Otherwise, <laughs> this wouldn't this wouldn't be a law in the law books. And then there are things that are sort of out of date that are still, you know, they kind of hang around. And again, as we reinterpret the text, and this is again what I'm calling scriptures, this interpretation of the text, we leave those things behind. And yet they're still written. So another example that's analog is, I think in Wyoming, it's still in the books that you can be hung for stealing horses. Right. But, but that doesn't happen. Nobody actually gets hung for stealing horses, even if they do steal horses. Right. And so eventually, who knows if they'll change that law, they'll have a new handbook of instructions or a new white Bible or a new law in the book. And so that's how it works, right? And so then finally, to wrap up this extended introduction to what's going to be ultimately be an extended introduction, <laughs> is that if we think ahead to where this is going, these people who, by the way, in this new way of being, even have this beautiful, just incredible utopian idea of this jubilee that I don't think we find any evidence that it ever was actually realized, right? right? I and mean, when I say that, I mean, archaeologists, anthropologists don't find any evidence that that was ever actually realized, but it was this ideal and it's beautiful. And it reminds me of our idea of Zion, mm -hmm. right? Something that, that we haven't realized, but that we think it's possible. It's something that we should shoot for, but what happens? We have Solomon who's going to build a temple to the God who freed his people from slavery on the backs of slaves. Something has gone wrong. Solomon has lost the plot. This is what happens. And this is where the prophets in the Bible come in. They're going to see the writing on the wall. They're going to say, guys, really? Come on, you've lost the plot, right? This does not work. You cannot do this. This is not sustainable. They're going to warn them what's going to happen to them if they continue in this path. And sure enough, it comes to pass. And what happens? They go back into exile again. Yeah. And so to wrap it up, all of this, I think in the end, this was written to us, but not for us or for us, and, but not to us. Not to us. It's yeah. for us. Yeah. So it's written to them. Yeah. It's all for us. Yeah. It's all for us and it's for them too, but it's written to people who are coming out of exile back to Jerusalem to remind them how to be God's people, how not to be what got them in trouble and how not to be the way that they were treated in Egypt. And another refrain that's repeated often is this idea of you can't treat people this way. You were treated this way, remember? So that's my overview of this overview that we're now going to go into. You know, as I was approaching this and listening to commentary and thinking about it and reading it and everything, I feel like the difficulty level of the text and how we approach it and wrestle with it has been increasing. It's almost like some game, you know, that every level is more difficult. And the one that came to mind for <laughs> me was Tetris, right? Like, so hopefully everybody's played Tetris and you haven't played Tetris, you need to play Tetris. But, you know, the concept in Tetris is you have to fit these blocks in and they just fall randomly from the top and you have to fit them in, in particular places in the bottom. And every level increases the speed at which those blocks come. And so I felt like, you know, I, I think in Tetris, I can usually get to level like 12 or 13 before it's just absurdly fast and I can't deal with it anymore. And, and when I started getting into Leviticus, I felt like I was at level 13 of Tetris. <laughs> and I was just like, there's too much. I can't deal with that. I don't know how to fit any of this in. I don't know what's going on. Game over. And so actually it was like, so, you know, it's kind of have a game over and be like, Let's start at the beginning again 
and contextualize this. And that was actually really helpful when I listened to Rob Bell. I felt like he kind of helped slow that down a little bit, give me some context. You still, when you go back to the text, just like you said, Christopher, you go back to the text and all of a sudden, you know, you're at level 13 and again, you don't know how to fit all the stuff in. And so this was, this was definitely really challenging approach. It's a long text we're doing, you know, essentially we're covering the material that is in Exodus chapter 35 through 40, and then all of the book of Leviticus. Now, the name for the book of Leviticus in our Bible comes from Levi. So this is the tribe that Aaron and Moses are members of. And the idea here is that this book is concerned with the worship practices of Aaron and his descendants because they belong to the tribe of Levi. And so they have this responsibility. You know, up until even just a few weeks ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> if you would have said, hey, tell me the good stuff out of the book of Leviticus, I would have had nothing to tell you at all. I would have said, you might as well just skip it. I didn't know what to say. You know what that reminds me of, Ben? At the beginning of Rob Bell's commentary, I think it's fairly close to the beginning. He tells us that this idea of loving your neighbor, you know, where does that come from? He asks, and, and then he answers, well, from Jesus, right? But where does Jesus get it? And it turns out it comes from Leviticus. Yeah, Leviticus. Who to thunk? Yeah, right in the middle, kind of right in the middle of this book, of all of this stuff, and some of it very strange is this phrase that pops out at us and it's love thy neighbor as thyself. And so that is a very interesting little gem kind of buried, I guess you could say in this, in this book of Leviticus. It's definitely buried. <laughs> but then again, you know, let's be fair. So to add a little bit to the overview, you know, it is in a sense buried, but to be fair, this book is dealing with issues that you might think this isn't relevant to me because I'm not a Jew. I'm not in ancient Israel. You know, we don't do things this way anymore. Again, since Matthew, since Paul, since the handbook of instructions, etc. This is just not how we do things. But the idea of dealing with the issues, these are human issues of injustice or of justice, I should say, of justice, of equality, of equity, of fairness, some of the things, you know, especially as Americans, we have this hyper-individualistic idea of the way that we think things are. And yet Leviticus reminds us that some of the ethical dilemmas that we face are really caused by us as a whole, not as individuals, but as people, right? As a people, as, as human race, but also therefore we're responsible. Not I'm responsible, but we're responsible. Yeah. And so we don't necessarily know how to deal with those things. I know how to deal with what I'm responsible for. But how do we deal with what we're responsible for? And they had an answer. They had an answer to this. It's there yeah. in the book. And another beautiful thing, Ben, that I see, you know, we have to go into this too. There's a way of making atonement that's outlined here in Leviticus, which is just the priest makes atonement for you through the sacrifice that you bring. And that's it. You know, you have a God who's willing and always ready to accept your sacrifice, which, you know, we understand as Christians, as a broken heart and a contrite spirit. There's a sense in which when the ancient Israelite went to the temple or to the tabernacle, as it were, to make this sacrifice, that there's something a little more tangible to it. So we can say that we have a higher law as Christians, but that at the same time gives us more responsibility. We have to be more conscientious, more aware, more self-aware 
We have to actually think about what we're doing because there's nothing that we are actually holding on to. There's nothing tangible there. You know, we're given the principle, like what I've said before in Islamic law is called maqasid, the purposes or intents of the law are given to us. And so now we have to be jurisprudence, right? We have to do jurisprudence. So we have to be with the TS or do with the CE jurisprudence. And that's tough, right? That means a greater responsibility. And, you know, when they did this once a year, you have this day of atonement, right? And now you get this fresh start. Well, we do that once when we get baptized. They're doing this once a year. Maybe that's better. But then again, maybe it's better still if we actually do it every week as at the sacrament table. But then again, they have this way of doing it with sort of some pageantry that makes it sort of come alive. And I'm reminded of the way it is in Catholic Church, where you still have the pageantry. They had smoke and mirrors, so to speak. I mean, they literally had incense, and the Catholics still do. And I think that that adds something to it. But again, there's just a lot to think about here, and a lot of value. You know, you talked about the physical aspect to this process, this this mode of atonement and sins and stuff, and that in many ways in our, not just in our culture, but even in our actual religious tradition, that's not as present, right? Even if we have this weekly sacrament that we do, and it is this physical and spatial experience, it's not the same or maybe as dramatic as this seems here in this book. But I want to step back and remember that for a nomadic people where their food and their everyday life was living with and caring for animals and regularly slaughtering them to prepare them for their food and feeding them and caring for them and all these sort of things to then make all of that lifestyle a religious pursuit. It brings religion into the everyday, what we would call the mundane, or not just religion, it's supposed to bring spirituality, if, if we can call it that. Now, we, we separate those things, but you know, in the ancient mindset, these aren't different things. It's, it's all part of your life. And so here in Leviticus, we see all of these things and all of these performances and sacrifices and slaughters of animals are all very foreign to us because the society and culture that we live in, you know, people on a regular basis don't do this. You go and you drive in your car to work and you come home and, you know, you pull your frozen chicken out of the freezer and, and you cook it and that's it, you know, like, and so these types of things seem odd. They seem out there, strange. And so at least for me, there's this temptation to think, oh, you know, this is this special and beautiful and, and strange thing that is supposed to elevate my understanding. But at the same time, like a lot of these things are really steeped within a culture that already does a lot of this stuff. In fact, as you go on in the book of Leviticus and the Numbers in Deuteronomy, you see that every killing of an animal, not just the sacrificial, but every time you slaughter an animal, it's a sacrifice. You have to do it at the tabernacle, at the temple. And that be, you know, it moves into that. At first, it's not that, but it moves into that. And so every single time that you're slaughtering an animal, this becomes a religious process. And so I then step back and look at my tradition and I think, okay, what are the things that I'm doing every single day that seem mundane and regular to me, but really, if I were to stop for a second, 
are spiritual or religious or supposed to be in nature. And I think, you know, if someone has gone to the temple and they wear temple garments, just putting on your temple garments every day is supposed to be this. That's what it's supposed to be. And you literally carry that around with you all day, every day. And that's supposed to be that thing right next to your body, to your skin, that reminds you of all of those covenants that you've made in the temple. And yet that doesn't stay in our minds. You know, we're invited to always gather our families as often as we can, you know, morning and and night or whatever for prayer together. And, you know, we maybe get to that once a day. And I'm just, I'm just thinking, you know, again, a lot of these things that we look at and that are strange in this book were somewhat everyday, normal, mundane tasks for them. And if we take the equivalent in our life, in our culture, and in our religious tradition, there is a lot that we are overlooking. And what I see in Leviticus is this invitation to us to elevate that mundane every day to a higher level. Yeah, that's especially true, Ben, if we remember, as the Lord has said, all things unto me are spiritual, and not at any time have I given unto you a law which was temporal. We have made this false dichotomy between the temporal and the spiritual that just isn't so. It just ain't so. And so we look at Islamic law, for example, or what we're looking at here in Leviticus, and we think, you know, these people, they have not learned They have not progressed. They're not as enlightened as we are. And this is a product of the so-called enlightenment, right? They have not separated the temporal from the spiritual. And by the way, keep that stuff to yourself because that has no place in the public square. And, And on the one hand, I'm not really making a case for bringing it into the public square other than, you know, you can bring it into the public square under your clothes, right? As you mentioned, when it comes to your temple garments, for example. You're just saying it's not necessarily more evolved, right? Yeah. I'm just saying like, what if we as individuals, you know, and as a religious community too, but in our own hearts, if we realized what the Lord has said, all things are spiritual, all of them, everything is spiritual. Rob Bell has a book called Everything is Spiritual, now that I think about it. Everything is spiritual. Richard Rohr has said the same thing, you know, all things are spiritual. And so if we realize that, if we get out of this false dichotomy that's supposedly this, you know, more enlightened way of thinking, then we might improve our lives. We might start to see the sacred meaning of the things that we do. And I'm reminded too of the work of Mircea Eliade, the comparative religious scholar par excellence, who said every act in traditional society, every act that was performed that followed a model, which ends up being a lot of these quote-unquote mundane things, as you put it, Ben, you know, getting married, planting, harvesting, all of these things follow a model. And so anything that's done that's outside of following a model is considered profane. So not, you know, not temporal spiritual, but sacred profane. And the profane is something for which when we've gone into the profane, meaning we're not following the model, we're not following Christ, for example, then they would go to the temple, which again is part of what we see here and something like this is what we see in Leviticus going to the tabernacle, this tent of meeting, right? Where you're then going to take yourself out of the chaos, meaning disorder, that you got yourself into by not following that order back into order. So you're not going to the temple to learn about creation. You're going to the temple to re-enter into creation, into order, right? Into cosmos. 
right? Cosmos mm-hmm. means order. The world, you know, when we talk about the world, that means the order of things. That means, you know, when we say the world's going to end, it's not the planet. It's not the universe. It's the order of things. And in fact, the world does end. At the beginning of this pandemic, my kids and I watched the Great Courses course on the Black Death back in Renaissance Florence. And we saw the world end. The way the world was before and the way the world was after were two different worlds. So what we're looking at here is using this idea of the temple or of the tabernacle of meaning, this tent of meaning. So you can go into this place and and it tells you the manual itself, Leviticus, right? It's telling you how to order your life such that your soul is ordered, such that your community is ordered, right? So your family, your extended community and such, and even strangers are dealt with and they're dealt with in a way of inclusion right? Inclusion and, and even the people who are, when I say strangers, this is what we call, you know, when saw we the stranger and took the end, right? In the Greek, it's exeno, as in, if you've seen my big fat Greek wedding, exeno with the toast family, right? (laughs) This is where we get xenophobia, right? So there's not a xenophobia, there's a xenophilia. And that brings up Ben, you know, I wanted to mention this too, the, the false dichotomies that people have between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are at least three that I know of, and I can only think of two right now. Uh, I remember telling you earlier today, I couldn't remember the third one, but one is sort of this, okay, the Old Testament has this angry, violent God and the New Testament doesn't, and it's just not true, right? You actually see both an angry, violent God in the New Testament and a non-angry, non-violent God in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And the other one is this idea of, oh, they're legalistic and they think it's salvation by works in the Old Testament and we have this salvation by grace in the New Testament. And again, it just doesn't hold true, right? I think, and I'd like to deal with it more especially in terms of the, what we call the Old Testament, because the fact is there's no if-then going on. That's not what's happening. When God comes, think of Sinai. He says, I've taken you out of Egypt. And now this is what you're going to do. You're my people. Now this is what you're going to do because you're my people. Not if you want to be my people, then do this, but you are my people. That's why I took you out of slavery in Egypt. And now this is what you're going to do because you're my people. And again, we've talked about this whole sovereign vassal treaty sort of setup, right? Yeah. So, you know, stepping back to the context again of of the book of Leviticus, when we when we delve back into Exodus and and as we're coming out of Exodus, ironically, right? So coming out of Exodus, so the that was a good one, Ben. Yeah, <laughs> I got that again. The whole book of Exodus is as they're coming out of Egypt. Then the Lord is bringing them to a place where He's going to instruct them on how to create this tabernacle so that His presence can be among them, and. The metaphor here that begins becoming very literal for them is a new creation, right? And this becomes symbolized over and over and over again with the use of the number seven. And so you have the Lord calling to Moses seven times. You have in mentions of impurities or uncleanness, you know, there's like a period of seven days. And then on the eighth day, you know, you're back. And so it's this model and this metaphor of creation that's happening where you have the old creation, which was the seven days, and the eighth day is the beginning of the new creation. And so what's happening is a new creation here. 
And when we get into these last chapters of Exodus, there's all the instruction on how to build the tabernacle. And then we get to chapter 40 and Moses, I thought this was interesting, that the text indicates that it's Moses that actually goes in and builds it, right? He's the one that actually puts everything together. It was all made by all these other people, but Moses is the one that stands up the poles and puts the curtains on. And, you know, he's the one that actually puts it together, right? So this is symbolizing this period of the creation of the world. And then we have him dressing Aaron and bringing him into the space, right? Is this not symbolic of bringing in Adam to the garden? Now, we do have conspicuous absence of Eve here, right? Of female in the garden. And I don't know exactly what to do with that, but everything else fits <laughs> except for that, which is odd. So he brings Aaron into this and then chapter 40, Exodus ends. And what's the next part? It's the tending to the garden. It's the tending to the sacred space. And it's all these instructions about how you tend this garden, this sacred space that has been created in the previous book. And so these are all the instructions of that. This is the new creation, right? And so constantly we have this repetition of the seven-day cycle and then the eighth day is the first day of the new creation. And, and that is a sort of an overarching theme here in the book of Leviticus and the context to where it comes from and its place within the broader narrative here. There really is so much good stuff there in this book. It can be cumbersome to read through it, but as you start to identify the themes and as you start to see the meaning behind the symbols, it's really cool. Within our Latter-day Saint tradition, we have this concept of priesthood, and we have the practice and policy of bestowing this priesthood upon young men, and we call it the Aaronic priesthood. And the idea here is that it's after the tradition of Aaron. And even in the Doctrine and Covenants, there's a part where it calls it the Levitical priesthood. So sometimes those terms are used interchangeably in our tradition, Levitical and Aaronic. I think they can be pretty well used interchangeably anyway, even though Levitical has, oddly enough, a more specific Old Testament context than Aaronic does. Aaronic, for the Latter-day Saint tradition, seems to have a little bit more of a, a restoration theme to it. Within, you know, the restored gospel narrative, the term Aaronic priesthood has a specific reference. And I bring this up to say that in the Doctrine and Covenants, there's a couple sections that came to mind as I was going through this Leviticus stuff. And one was Doctrine and Covenants section 13, which is John the Baptist coming to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and bestowing upon them what he calls the Aaronic priesthood. And he says in it, towards the end, he says that the sons of Levi may offer up again an offering in righteousness unto the Lord. And so this is a specific reference back to this book of Leviticus. But how many of us, particularly young men in the Aaronic Priesthood, even know what that's talking about? Even go back and read Leviticus to say, what does he mean, offer up an offering in righteousness? And so I'm not proposing an answer to you know, what they should understand by that. I'm just saying we have all of these fingers pointing us to this book in our tradition. and we don't really approach it in that way to say, what should our Aaronic priesthood young men understand about this book? What could it say to them about what their calling and responsibility is and what meaning could it have for them? 
if we go to section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, there's a part in it that we call the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood. And it talks about when we receive the priesthood, you know, we become the sons of Aaron. And people will recite that or read it, and they have no idea what this is really implying. What are we talking about, the sons of Aaron? Well, you know, back in Leviticus, we actually get some of the narrative of the story of the sons of Aaron and what the purpose is here. What does this mean? Why is this being brought up? And so I just think, like, even within our own tradition, again, this book is referenced a lot, and we don't delve into it at all, at least in my experience, to really understand what it is that's referencing and why it would even be referenced. And that includes in the suggested reading, in the Come Follow Me reading, we're asked to read three chapters. What is it? One, 16, and 19? And I, I hope we're going to have time to go into those chapters and maybe even some other details from some other chapters. But to stay on this theme, you bring up a really good question. And I, you know, as a philosopher, I approve of bringing up questions without answering them. I think we should each be asking ourselves these questions. And there's no rule that says that you can't read the reading that isn't assigned. I remember my wife saying to me, I gave a public lecture. It was on Marx and Bastia, meaning the Communist Manifesto and the law in particular, specifically. And this was her first exposure to Marx's Communist Manifesto. And she said, I can't believe they didn't make me read this in school. Hmm. And I said, nobody has to make you read it. Nobody made me read it. I just did. Hmm. And so, of course, you know, it's up to us to, and, and by the way, as fathers, you know, Ben, you and I are fathers, it really is up to us not only to read this for ourselves, but to teach our children. They hide this stuff in books. That's what I always say. <laughs> they hide this stuff in books. And one of them is the Bible. So I still have more to say about context of Leviticus because that's most of this podcast is going to be discussing intro and, and context of this. And this is something that... Well, hopefully that's helpful for those who do want to delve into it, right? Yeah, it really does. Because again, Leviticus is so um, confusing, might be the right word. It, it, Leviticus is a lot of things. And if you don't have some sort of tools with you or mindset or just some hints, I guess, maybe to look for as you, as you start delving into it, you, it's hard to bring much back out of it. I like your approach, Ben. It's very nice of you to go into these things, you know. I would have said, read XYZ books, the end. <laughs> but let's do more than that for the listener. So one of the things that was really helpful that Rob Bell brought up, you know, we'd already been thinking of this concept as we're going through Exodus, but I didn't quite know how to apply it to Leviticus, but he, he was able to kind of connect that dot for me, was, again, going back to this idea that these people have been ostensibly in slavery in Egypt for, it says, 420 years, okay? So their entire identity and culture and customs and history are tied up in being slaves. And this is a particular place too. So Egypt is under the control of Pharaoh. And by this time, and he even talks about it in the narrative with Joseph, he owns everything. With all the famines that happened, or the famine that happened for seven years, right? Pharaoh ended up taking control of everything. Everybody gave him everything, all the land, the, the everything. So Pharaoh owns everything. And when you are a slave, you go out in the field and you harvest crops or, or whatever you're doing, but, you know, ostensibly you're, you're working 
And everything that you do, all the benefits from your labor go to Pharaoh. They don't go to you, they go to Pharaoh. And it just keeps perpetuating this, this cycle. And there is absolutely no way as a slave, and especially in Egypt, to ever get out of that cycle because everything is owned and accumulated by the Pharaoh. And so this system perpetuates this injustice indefinitely, and there's no way out of it. For 420 years, this is pounded into the consciousness, maybe even the DNA of these people. How are they going to escape this, not just physically, but mentally and spiritually and culturally? How do they escape this? And that is what is so powerful to me about this phrase that you, you brought up, Christopher, that is brought up constantly in these books, specifically in Leviticus. Every time they're given a command of a way, a particular way to do things, you do it this way. Why? Because I am the Lord your God that brought you out of Egypt. Because this is a new way of doing things. It's not the old slave way of Egypt that perpetuates injustice forever. If we do it this way, we're going to build a new world, a new creation, and you're going to be my holy people. And that's why you're going to do it this way. Yeah, by the way, guys, thank goodness we don't have this kind of problem anymore, right? Mm. Again, Leviticus is so relevant today because we do still have this problem, right? We still have this systematic injustice, right? That, that's this structural injustice that's part of the system. Mm -hmm. We still have this problem. By the way, from another point of view, I guess if you're a slave in Egypt, and especially if you're under an unjust king, a pharaoh is a king, right? It's a title. Yeah. Yeah. He's, the, he's the monarch, you know? The archetypal king is to provide for his people, provide and protect his people, and to be generative, right? To produce an heir. Those are the three things that make the archetypal king who he is, right? This is the idea. And the same goes for the archetypal queen in her own right. So if you have an archetypal king and if he's just, and you're not a slave, which, you know, the people that we're dealing with are, it is his job. And remember, Joseph set this up. Uh -huh. Joseph set this up. It is his job to take in, when you say it all goes to him, not you. Well, it doesn't go to you because again, the kind of problem we have today is we've created, we, we've, we've said, no, that's not the way to do it. We have this other way of doing it. Well, now everything that I earn is for me. And now I can accumulate. And we have this idea that somehow we have a just system now because what I produce is for me and it doesn't go to a pharaoh. But again, is the pharaoh an archetypal king who is just, who is providing for his people? Because that's what he did, right? Joseph set it up so that everything comes into the king's storehouse, let's say, mm -hmm. so that then it can be distributed according to the needs of the people. Right. Nowadays, our version is, no, we don't do that anymore. I earn it. I keep it. Somehow I did it all, you know, without any injustice is the idea, which is, of course, not true. Yeah. And now I get to keep it all. And there's the same kind of injustice. So it really, it's, it almost seems like regardless of the economic system that we have, this same type of injustice can occur. And we can't fool ourselves that because we have this, not that that we don't have injustice. We do. Yeah. So this idea that they're starting something new, they're not going to do it like the old way. There's no old gods, traditions, everything starts fresh. And often here in Leviticus, here's another thing to 
to think about. Often when we see something in here that's a very oddly specific directive about how to do a sacrifice or how to behave in a particular way or do something in a particular way, if it's kind of oddly specific, it's probably because it's the opposite of what everybody else does. Yeah, it's something like don't transport cattle in school buses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's just like they take a survey of what everybody else around them does and they put it all in a column. And then on the next column, they just write down all the things that are the opposite of that. And this is what we're going to do, right? Because we are a new, different people. We're not going to do it like anybody else. I am the Lord, your God. I brought you out of Egypt, right? So with that, Ben, we can say that there's not necessarily an objective reality to what's called in Leviticus clean and unclean, which I think we should go into a little bit, by the way, Ben, because... Yeah, that's actually the next thing on my list. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, something that is unclean, it just gives the impression, if you don't understand the context, it sounds like it sounds like you're bad and wrong somehow, right? Or, or that this unclean is like, ew, you know, don't touch this person. And of course we do have the skin diseases and don't touch those people because it makes you unclean. But this goes away at sundown, Yeah, right? You just become clean again, or you go to the priest. The imperative is don't touch them because they're unclean. The imperative is if you do, you need to clean, right? So like there's a difference between sin and ritual uncleanliness in, in Leviticus. Exactly. Sin is not permitted. Sin is prescribed. You say, you don't do this. Don't do this. But ritual impurity isn't something that generally, there might be exceptions to this, but generally the idea here is that the, the ritual impurity isn't ever prescribed. It's never said, don't do this or don't do that. So for priests, that is the case, right? Because priests, they do have certain things that are prescribed for them because they are responsible for tending for the sacred space. But the people at large, generally, it's not don't do those things. It's that if you do go through this process to clean yourself, right? And that can be true of the priest too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that can be true of the priest too. In fact, there are certain things that are unclean that are specifically commanded, right? So the people are commanded from Genesis to multiply and replenish the earth. But actually, sexual intercourse makes you unclean. Ritually speaking, yeah. Right, ritually unclean. And so there's a process you have to go through, right? And so- Yeah, that's where my example maybe yeah. uh, can be helpful. So for example, in Leviticus, when a woman has her menses, right, she's not participating in the public life, right? Because this experience of the tabernacle is a public life, right? Hmm. So during that time, she's ritually unclean. There's nothing wrong with her. Like nobody's saying it's you're bad and wrong because you're menstruating. Yeah, sources of impurity are unrelated to sin. Exactly. So, you know, it's something that's actually even a benefit to her, you know, you're excused in some sense. So in Islamic law it's the same. If uh, a woman is menstruating, she's excused from the public, you know, Friday prayers. I'm not sure if she's performing ritual prayers at home. She may be excused from those too. But the point is, she's definitely excused from these public performance of prayers, right? And so this is actually helpful for her. Now, I had a student when I was teaching Islamic ethics, when I mentioned this idea of, of ritual impurity, she was offended. You know, and she wasn't a Muslim. If she were a Muslim, she would have been familiar with the idea. And she was just offended. And she thought that I was saying that there was something wrong with her being a woman or something like this. By the way, I'm not imposing Muslim law on anybody. 
maybe we should say we're, we're not trying to be apologetic of these regulations. We're just stipulating what they are and what they aren't, right? And Right, yeah. And sometimes there's mis misconceptions about what they are. So Yeah, I wasn't putting forward that she followed this law. I don't I don't follow it myself. I'm not a Muslim. But I was teaching it. It was my job to teach it. And she went to the department to complain that I was teaching this. And the person that she complained to said, Well, doesn't it say on the course description this is a course on Islamic ethics? This is Islamic ethics. This is how it's taught, you know? And that was the end of that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things in the commentary talked about how just as there's varying levels of purity within the sacred space, right? You have the Holy of Holies and then the courtyard and then the outer, right? There are also varying levels of impurity. And the idea kind of was that there are certain things that are ritually unclean that can make the space impure. And so you have to do things to clean it. But there's only one thing that penetrates its impurity, if we want to keep it within that context, penetrates all the way to the Holy of Holies, and that's sin. And the idea is that sin, you know, these, of these unclean, ritually unclean things don't get that far. But sin among the people or, or whatever, it actually defiles the Holy of Holies. And then that's when we come to the Day of Atonement, where the Holy of Holies has to be purged and cleaned. And so then you sprinkle the blood and, and so forth. So I, I thought that was an interesting idea, just again, along these lines of the, the distinction between sin and, and ritual impurity. Yeah. And I had to look up the, the question I had. I was embarrassed. Uh, the administrating woman in, in Islam is excused from all prayers, right? It's actually not something she should do while she's menstruating. It's interesting. We have all these little, again, Sharia works the same way, right? all these little details of how you do things. Some of them have these obvious benefits that I've hinted at, you know, some of them may make no sense. Some of them may have had obvious benefits to the people who this text was written to that we just don't have access to. As I've said, the scholars just have no idea why, you know, there must be something that was understood to the people this text was written to that just isn't available to us. We don't have access to it. Sure. I mean, I can imagine somebody just out of nowhere, no context, coming across either a handbook of instructions or the little missionary white Bible, right? And picking this up and being like, what is this talking about? Yeah. This is so weird. Why would anybody live like this? And, you know, it's like, well, they're missing all of the cultural context that surrounds where this book came from and who had it and what they were doing with it. That's right. And you pointed out that the White Bible is only for missionaries. And there's a sense in which, again, we mentioned that the Levite priests had certain way of living. And by the way, that way of living is actually about representing, embodying, right? Embodying what it means to live this new order. And as a matter of fact, Rob Bell talks about God looking for a body in his excellent book on Exodus, which is Jesus wants to save Christians, that he's looking for a people to embody what it looks like to be God's people. And so, like I said, Solomon loses the plot and is enslaving people to build a temple to the God who frees people from slavery, his people. This is not what God has in mind. And this idea of taking upon ourselves the Lord in vain, as I've said before, is this idea of not just of not using the Lord's name in vain, which I think actually shows up in Leviticus, but actually 
not carrying the name, as in wearing it, as in representing oneself as God's people without actually acting the part. You know, a lot of the things that in Leviticus deal with do this, don't do this type of things are, you know, if we kind of zoom out, they all seem to be related to this concept of life and death. And anything that, you know, is approaching death or, or symbolizes death is unclean or impure. And anything that is about life, it's, it's not like it's permitted. What it is, is it, it belongs to God. Life belongs to God. And so this becomes mostly symbolized within blood, the concept of blood. And blood is the life of the animal or of humans as well, but particularly in this context of sacrifice, the animal. And so the blood only belongs to God. It's life that belongs to God. It can't be consumed or, or eaten or, you know, you don't do anything besides specifically what's prescribed with the blood. And so that, that concept kind of moves its way out into other things that have to do with human relations, whether it's sexual things going on or diseases that have to do with blood or body fluids, because they all relate to this concept of life or anytime, you know, Rob Bell puts it this way, you know, like life and death are actually very close to each other. And so anytime that you're dealing with something that's explicitly life, like blood, you are also teetering on the edge of death. And so you take extreme care and caution in these things. These things, as Leviticus says, are most holy. And so they're taken with very particular care. Yeah, Ben, that reminds me, you know, people think that it just looks to us nowadays just barbaric that they're slaughtering animals, you know, these sacrifices. But as you pointed out earlier, these are the animals that they're going to eat. And as a matter of fact, before the, they did things this way or the way their neighbors did things, people were just wantonly slaughtering animals here and there and everywhere. And these people had to pause and they had to bring the animals to the tabernacle to make these sacrifices. And we today, again, the relevancy of Leviticus to us today, it couldn't be more relevant. We have this mass slaughtering of animals, this wholesale slaughter, because we have to satisfy our appetite for meat, right? That is just nothing that they did compares in scale to what we're doing. Or just we're very detached from the process. We're very detached from it, right? We have nothing to do with it personally. I mean, what if you had to slaughter the animal that you were going to eat? Would that be different than, than the way you do it? Not meaning, would you feel differently about it? Yeah, and, and maybe it doesn't mean that you eat less meat. It's the idea that everything is elevated, you know, in your life to a spiritual level. Exactly. Whereas now, you know, you pull the frozen chicken or ground beef out of the fridge and you cook it up for dinner. That's not a spiritual thing, right? That's just, well, we got to make dinner, right? Right. But in this context, like everything about your life becomes this spiritual exercise and you're remembering God and you're remembering the life that's given and all these sort of things. It, it reminds me in a lot of ways of a lot of the parables that are given or examples in the Sermon on the Mount, because as Jesus is teaching, and it's not just Sermon on the Mount and all of his teaching is he's teaching in parables, he takes everyday examples of people, you know, making bread or fishing or 
all these different things. And the idea is that you're to think of all of these everyday mundane tasks or occurrences as something spiritual within themselves. Your spirituality and your existence as a child of God is not detached from your everyday life. They are the same thing. Everything is spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I leave it an open question, you know, for the listener to consider whether actually, you know, slaughtering each animal she ate would have her consume less meat. I don't know. Sure. The yeah. point is that you'd have to face the question and, and I'm happy to bring up questions without answering them. Yeah. I'm trained to do this. Another thing Rob Bell brought up that uh, was interesting was his commentary on the fact that the book of Hebrews, letter to the Hebrews, is, is basically a commentary. I think you kind of brought this up, Christopher. Hebrews is basically a commentary, a sermon about the book of Leviticus, or a big portion of it is about the book of Leviticus because he's writing to the Hebrews, right? And so he's referencing all of these things, but he brings it into the Christological context and points to Jesus and this new way of doing things again, newer than Leviticus, because Jesus has brought this new way, this new law, fulfilled the law. And so that's kind of the context for the whole book of Hebrews. And as he was reading through some of it, I realized, man, I thought I understood Hebrews, but I didn't understand hardly anything of Hebrews because I didn't know anything about Leviticus. Right. Yeah, that's the same as I was saying about reading Matthew. I feel like I had no business reading Matthew. I hadn't done the prerequisite work <laughs> of reading the Old Testament. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be better prepared to talk about the New Testament when the time comes and the listener will be better prepared too for having gone through this exercise and, and you know studying this text. This text is still relevant. It's the context. The Old Testament, as we call it, is the context for the New Testament. And even in and of itself, a book like Leviticus has things to say to the issues that we face, the significant issues that we face as humans today. Going through, without getting into the details, right, just again, skimming over the surface, as you go through, if you're reading this and you don't know what's going on, at the beginning of the first few chapters, you get this kind of sacrifice, that kind of sacrifice, the other kind of sacrifice, without even naming them. The point is that they're different kinds of sacrifices, and they have different purposes. And so what the people at this time had, thanks to Leviticus, and again, we have our own manuals, but they had a way, and, and again, I'm not sure that we have the answers that they had even, and maybe we should even have better answers by now than they had, but I'm not even sure we have as good as, as answers as they had sometimes. And this isn't the only area in which I've seen that. We who think that we've progressed so far and we're so enlightened have really lost some of the wisdom of antiquity and, and that's available to us in this wisdom literature, not only in our own tradition, but in the other traditions. We live in the fullness of times, right? This is the fullness of times. That means all of these sacred texts are available to us in our own language, and we can benefit from them, and they have a benefit to offer us. And so looking at these different sacrifices, they each answered to a specific concern, you know, whether you have made yourself unclean in a certain way, or whether you have even just dealing with health problems, right? Or whether you have offended someone, or whether there's, again, the one that I think we're most detached from. How do we deal with collective guilt or sin? Do we even have a concept of that as Americans? Do we even have a concept of that? You know, we think it's all about the individual, but, you know, without getting too mystical, we'll leave that for Latter-day contemplation. You know, the idea is 
if there's something going wrong out there in society, to paraphrase Shakespeare, what is the city but the people, he says. So what is society but the individuals that make up the society? So if something's wrong with the way our society functions, in some sense, there is no such thing as a society without the individuals that make up the society. So we may not be able to pinpoint that, you know, Ben, it's your fault or it's my fault, but something in us, in some way, we are having something to do with what's going wrong. And we may not realize it. And we have to be able to look at this and we have to be able to think about it and we have to be able to do something about it. And this is one of the issues that Leviticus addresses that makes it so relevant for us today. Yeah. As strange as it seems. I think that different people, if they sat and thought for a bit, they could probably come up with several examples of something like this. Something that as a society, we have some collective responsibility for. And it could be, you know, either a positive or negative thing. It's just the idea being that, you know, I, I have contributed sort of unconsciously or indeliberately to this, but, you know, it's just, it's just the way that things are done. And so we have a system that we have, we all sort of acquiesce to as a society, but this system is creating a problem or causing injustice. How do we get over that? Yeah, you know, you can sort of deal with it at an individual level, but that's very difficult to do because when you are an individual living in a society, dealing with certain problems at an individual level becomes impractical or impossible. And so this concept of a collective sin or collective guilt, which I think I would have wholesale rejected a couple of years ago, I think is very interesting. And, and there is some value to that as it discusses here in Leviticus and a way to deal with it that we don't really have a method of that. I mean, we might politicize that and say, oh, well, you know, in a democratic system, we can elect different people and do this and vote for that and whatever and change this. But that only deals with certain aspects of it. It doesn't deal with the actual guilt of the problem, right? Well, sure. And let me be controversial a little bit since I don't really know any other way to be, but hopefully not too controversial. I want to be controversial enough to make the listener think, right? But not too controversial so as to not be heard anymore. And that is, you know, so let's say, you know, without taking sides and without, you know, I, I don't even have a political beautiful uh, to put forward, Ben, as you know, better than maybe the listener that as you and I both, and, and Shiloh, you know, and Lindsay, who's actually written about it for Latter-day Peace Studies, that we've kind of gone through a transition where we went from whatever, maybe from more conservative to definitely more libertarian to I don't care Aryan, as that's what I call myself <laughs> these days. You know, I just, don't, I just don't get involved in politics. I think that, yes, in some sense, we have to be able to come together as a community to deal with these issues. But here's how it is being handled, right? These kind of injustices that this book is pointing to are dealt with nowadays, whether you think they should be or shouldn't be, they're dealt with at the level of politics. And in some sense, they have to be. Now, I personally have spent a lot of time as a philosopher thinking about the distinction that I'd like to see made between ethics and politics. Something has always said to me, there has to be a distinction. And I think the distinction comes from the idea of agency, right? One thing is, should you do something? The other thing is, should it be forced to do something? Yeah. And so without going into that in any further detail, there's that distinction, right? 
So, but the way it's being dealt with, because there are some people, and I even had a Latter-day Saint woman once tell me, well, some people have to be forced to do the right thing. And I thought, to me, that was much more controversial then than it is now. I really still don't think that people should be forced to do the right thing, but I definitely think I identify better with where she was coming from when she said that than I did then. I'm more open to the problem. I don't know that that's the solution, but I do see the problem. And so these things are dealt with at the level of politics. And because there are these injustices that aren't really caused by any particular person, in some sense, everyone has to pay for them, so to speak, or to do something to remedy them or to contribute to remedying them in the same way that they, in some sense, contributed to the cause of the problem. And so it makes sense, even if it isn't the best way, that one of the ways that people think of dealing with this is through politics. And so if you don't think that's the way to deal with it, fine. Then ask yourself, how should it be dealt with? But it has to be dealt with. Yeah, These issues have to be dealt with. We have to recognize the part that we play. Again, if there's a problem with society, I may not know. Sure, you might be able to blame it on some particular person, but a lot of times, again, where politics becomes involved, is there are laws that permit it or there aren't laws that forbid it and people are going to do whatever they can get away with and we don't have a good pharaoh so and we don't want one so then whatever i get is mine and you know to heck with you and so the question is am i my brother's keeper it really goes all the way back to maybe not adam this time but Cain and abel Yeah, I mean, some of this starts going into the discussion that we hinted at at the beginning, and that was the idea of the Jubilee, right? And this is something built into the structure of their timekeeping, I guess, but not exactly timekeeping, more cycle. And the cycle always being based on that number seven, because you have the creation and then every seven years, there's the beginning of a new creation. And so there's the constant reminder of that Sabbath that is to be observed. This is the Lord's, this is a symbol, a sign of your covenant with God, uh, remembrance, awareness that you have been brought out of slavery. He's the Lord, your God. So you take this time to emulate the divine in your rest because God, it says, rested on the seventh day. So the injunction is do no work on the seventh day. That becomes extrapolated out to not just the seventh day, but now it's the seventh year. So you have six years and then the seventh year you're to do no planting or harvesting of crops which is the, the work that's sort of spoken of here. Yeah. Can you imagine? Because there's something else to that too. It's not just, you know, God is saying, I brought you out of Egypt, now do this, right? Because again, I'm your God, and this is what you're going to do to be my people. And there's wisdom in it. You know, I think for some people, they don't know, they don't really know what it is to have a Sabbath because they haven't accepted the gift. And I know this, and I don't, I don't mean to pass judgment. I just, I know it because I've seen it. And I, and I also know from my own experience what a gift it is because I used it almost as an excuse. Well, can't do that. You know, I'm thinking of my years as a student. I spent so many years in school, you know, working on a double major at BYU, going to school year round without even a spring break because of education week, you don't get a spring break. And then I studied abroad in Jordan. And then before grad school, I studied abroad in Syria. And then I went into a master's program. And what a blessing it was to me 
to have a Sabbath. I never once studied on the Sabbath. There was, there was Monday morning tests. And I said, you know what? I do the best I can until Saturday night. And Monday morning, I'm not really an early riser. So I wasn't, that was it, Saturday night. I wasn't going to pull an all-nighter. I wasn't going to study on a Sunday. I wasn't going to get up early on Monday. And I trusted in God. And I think, you know, the thing is to trust in God, right? I think what we're dealing with here is this idea of trusting in God. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? We have such a hard time with not working these days. More and more. Apparently, it was already an issue back then, but this idea of just not working, just taking a break and realizing that it's not all going to fall apart because guess what? We're not the ones holding it all together anyway. And I think that's what God is trying to show us, that he is the one holding all of it together. Yeah. And we have to trust him. We have to be able to, and and by the way, if you're worried about being productive, you're going to be much more productive with a Sabbath than without. Uh, As Stephen Covey put it in his secularized version of how to live the gospel, you've got to take time to sharpen the saw. You can't spend all your time sawing and never stop to sharpen the saw. If you want to be able to cut well, you've got to sharpen the saw. So I think this goes both ways. You know, I I do see what you're talking about, Christopher, in our society, sort of this idea of a, a workaholic type of thing. But, you know, what happens in people's lives, not just with sort of the work atmosphere, but being connected, you know, through different social media or, or just having their phone always on them. Right. You know, like, oh yeah. Like, I don't even know if I can, you know, go an hour without knowing where my phone is, you know, all the time it's like, oh, where's my phone? You know? Yeah. What if you took a, a sabbatical from, from your phone? Yeah. I don't know. Cause most people are probably aren't doing that on Sunday. What if you did that? How about a Facebook fast? Rob Bell brings up this idea. If I stop posting on Facebook, it's almost, he made it sound like, do I stop existing? Right. It's like, will anybody even know that I exist anymore? Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I Facebook, therefore I am. So I think that's definitely part of it. The other thing I wonder about is sort of not exactly the inverse of that, but a different perspective on it. And I wonder if a Sabbath maybe loses its meaning to us when we don't actually work the other six days right? Like we're not actually engaged in something productive the other six days. Does a day of rest and a Sabbath mean as much to us? So I wonder sometimes, okay, am I actually dedicating myself to productivity these other days? Or am I taking too much time off or resting too much within those periods so that the Sabbath, we conceptualize of it as Sunday in our tradition, is truly meaningful to me within that context. Ben, help us understand where you're coming from. You're an entrepreneur. There are people who live paycheck to paycheck. There are people who were, you know, punch the clock. What do you mean? I mean that there are times when I cannot get away from work. And it's not that I can't leave the office. It's not that I can't physically leave the office. It's that I can't mentally leave the office. Are you talking about the blurring of the distinction between work and non-work? Sure. Kind of like we were talking about personal, what is it, the temporal and the spiritual? Yeah. And and there's two ways that this goes. Yeah. Yeah. There's two ways that this goes. So one is, you know, that I'm I'm often too connected or too mentally invested so that even when Sunday comes, when my Sabbath is supposed to be here, my mind is still working right? It's still working on these problems and trying to figure out the solution to them rather than letting them be. You know, you talked about this being 
really a matter of trust. And I think, I think there's really something to that, you know, and, and that comes into play in the years that they let the fields lie fallow and then the Jubilee year two, which we want to get to and talk about, but it's all back to that concept of trusting that God is the one in control or in charge. He's the one that provides, right? He's our King. Just like Pharaoh is supposed to be the one that provides for his people, God is the king that's providing for them. And so again, I, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about those problems. On the reverse of that, I do wonder sometimes, maybe I had a, a really busy, difficult week, Monday through Friday, and Saturday comes, and really what I should be doing is you know, some yard work, keeping up the house, cleaning, spending some time with kids, and, and really tending to other matters that maybe I didn't do during the week. And instead, I'm just like, I'm going to sit around and do nothing on Saturday because I'm tired. And then Sunday comes and it's like, well, I sat around and did nothing yesterday. Let's do that again today. <laughs> and so I think sometimes it's just that Sunday might be more meaningful to me if I truly dedicated myself to productivity the other days and did let go on Sundays. You know, it's just about putting things in their proper place. And, and again, like you said, sometimes that line is blurred. And for me, it can sort of rob the meaning of it sometimes. I don't know. I feel a little bit anxious. It, it sounds like you're saying I should be working harder six <laughs> days a week. I don't know that I can handle that, Ben. I just came back from a seven-day Sabbath without my kids. You know, I'm a full-time stay-at-home homeschool dad, PhD student, and I took time off of both. I'm not talking about what you should do. Okay. I'm talking about how I've conceptualized of this in my life and how I've seen it be that. Because you brought up the point, you know, like, I have a particular way of approaching work and my own productivity and everybody sure. has that differently. You know, you're more academic and a scholar. So like for you, more productivity in work is probably reading, writing, translating, yeah. you know, talking and thinking and about those sort of things. And, you know, mine is a different type of vocation, so to speak. And so it's just a different context. I think we can also say that you don't have to wait six days to apply the principle of the Sabbath, right? Yeah. So for sure. me, meditation, contemplative prayer, pausing, you know, and even just, well, I quit Facebook personally, you know, I did that years ago, or at least, you know, removing it from your phone so that you at least have to go out of your way to go to your computer to get to it, that these things can put a little bit of space right in there and, you know, just for me, just, it's so helpful just to take 20 minutes, you know, at least just 20 minutes out of my day to meditate and to pray, you know, to perform contemplative prayer. It's so helpful. And it's actually, you know, if, again, if you're interested in productivity, because sometimes we can't get your attention unless we actually promise you that you will actually be more productive in the end. So you sharpen the saw, you're more productive, you <laughs> meditate, it is more restful than sleep and in a different way than sleep, you need sleep. This doesn't, because now you're thinking, oh, wait, I can meditate and not sleep. No, you sleep and you meditate and you become more effective. You know, you become better able to handle things. I don't know where I would be without meditation. I don't know how I got by without it. And I think I could benefit from upping it from once a day to twice a day. And that takes discipline. Again, I struggle with this. I'm not a saint. I am a practicing Sufi, but I'm no Sufi saint. Uh, I'm a sucky Sufi. That's what I call myself. I'm a sucky Stoic too. I even <laughs> registered suckystoic.com. There's nothing there yet. But, you know, 
it's hard. It's hard. Where do I carve out these 20 minutes? But it pays. They, they pay back. I know this intellectually. I'm trying to be more consistent with my once a day meditation. And then hopefully, you know, I can move up to twice a day, God willing, and that would be beneficial. This does make me ask myself, the idea here in, in Leviticus and even throughout scripture, but in Leviticus is that you're to give the best as sacrifice, right? The unblemished, the elsewhere in scripture, it talks about the first fruits, right? This is supposed to be your best that you're offering the Lord that is the first of things, right? So that's why, I mean, in, in our tradition, the Sabbath is the first day. So we could think of it in that way, like it's just the beginning of the week and we dedicate it to the Lord in terms of a holy purpose. And so you think, okay. Ben, the, the first day of the week is Sunday. Yeah. But I don't think we think of it as we're giving the first day. <laughs> we think of, uh, <laughs> of Sunday as the last day of the week. I love the idea that you bring up of actually realizing, right? Of actually, sometimes it's just a matter of intention. What if we had the intention, we have the realization this is the first day and we have the intention of giving that first day to the Lord. That's a beautiful thought. Yeah. So this idea that, you know, it's the first of something or even, you know, in the tradition, the last day of the week is the day of rest. But the concept I think is the same, the best that we're offering the Lord. You know, as you're talking about Christopher taking that time in meditation for a lot of people, that's first thing in the morning, right? So one way you could conceptualize of this, and again, I'm not prescribing anything for anybody to do it this way. I'm just thinking about ways that if I felt like I needed to elevate my life, my spirituality, or my commitment to these kinds of things, I can think of a lot of ways that I could do that. And if I was ready to take that next step, I can think right now of some different things that I could do. And so like one of the things that I could potentially do is take maybe a first hour of the day, right? And that's dedicated to that purpose, or maybe last hour of the day. But I think the idea is, is taking time, just like you said, and dedicating that to that particular purpose. Ben, yeah. Have you heard of a prayer rack? Do you know what a prayer rack is? Is that something that's well known in our tradition? Is it the thing you put under your pillow so that you hit your head on it when you go to bed? Yeah, you put the <laughs> prayer rack on your pillow so that you hit your head and you remember to pray, and then you put it on the floor so you stub so you your toe. Yeah. That's cute, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know that it would actually work, but I, I was talking to a friend last night and he told me his grandpa told him when he goes to bed to put his shoes as far under his bed as possible so that he has to get down on his knees to get uh, them in the morning. <laughs> that seemed like a good idea. Yeah. All these little things, these modes you could come up with in your life that, that point yourself to that, that moment, that time, that space that becomes holy, that becomes about creating something new, comes about letting God be part of your everyday life in a better way. And remember, while Ben is talking about these individual practices, that we have to be able to do this as a community, right? This is, we have to be able to do this as a community. We have to become a Zion people, and that's a communal effort. And so I know we want to talk about this idea of the, the Jubilee and and compare that with Zion a little bit too, right? Maybe we maybe we end there. We didn't really go into the the particulars of some of the chapters. You've brought out one of the other themes that really is predominant in all of Leviticus, not just in the chapters that were in the assigned reading, if, if we want to call it that. And that is the the idea of the the Sabbath, the principle of the Sabbath. That is a big part of Leviticus. Yeah. So 
the Sabbath being tied to the symbolism of the number seven, seventh day, seventh year, and then you get seven times seven is 49. And so then the 50th year after that seven times seven is the Jubilee year. And this concept has always fascinated me, but I didn't realize until studying Leviticus within the past few days that this injunction of the Lord, this basically this invitation to them to practice this, there's no evidence that this actually was ever historically enacted among the people. They didn't, they didn't practice this. They didn't live this. But this idea of the Jubilee is, is really fascinating and beautiful. And it is in many ways a response, again, back to that pharaonic system of injustice, you know, to ensure that there's not a system that develops over time that puts the disadvantaged at a permanent disadvantage, that there's always a reset, a new creation, right? This first day of new creation where things are put back in their proper, just order, and people can begin again. And so in the Jubilee year, there's forgiveness of debts. All the land goes back to the people who originally owned it. So the idea here is that you could buy land from somebody, but the amount that you pay for that land is going to depend on how many years are left until the Jubilee, right? Because you're going to have to give that land back. And so you basically are really only leasing land and it goes back to its original owners. This is to, again, prevent a system in which the people are permanently deprived of their property. So there's all kinds of little stipulations that happen with this, this Jubilee, but it's, it's just a fascinating concept that, again, you know, you talked about, Christopher, how this is kind of this ideal that is offered to them as a people that if they, if they were to observe this kind of thing every seventh year as a Sabbath year and every 50th year as a Jubilee year, this is a symbol of their trust in God, their covenant with him, that he would prosper them based on that. They would be able to let go of this, this illusion of control and allow themselves to, to just be, right, to live. Yeah, it's a beautiful concept. And again, it, it reminds me of our own Zion concept. The, the whole goal of the book of Leviticus and of, of the whole Bible, really, I mean, this is what Exodus is about. This is what Genesis is about. We're always recreating the world in a new, better way. The Lord, you know, our God is leading us into a new way of being, a new creation. This is what baptism is about. This is the whole Bible. It's the whole story. It's a story of how we become better, how, how God takes us wherever we are. The Book of Mormon works the same way. Sometimes we look at the Book of Mormon and we think, you know, here's uh, so-and-so, and he's the, the example. For example, if all men would be like, who is it, Mormon or Moroni? Moroni. Yeah, if all men would be like Moroni, the gates of hell were sh would shake. Look, I'm not trying to shake the gates of hell. I don't think that's what Jesus was doing either. I'm trying to be like Jesus. The primary kids in church don't sing, I'm trying to be like Moroni. Hmm. They sing, I'm trying to be like Jesus. And I think it's a mistake to look at anyone other than Jesus, who is the model to follow, as some model to follow. I think we see stories over and over again of people, wherever they are, 
being accepted by God and yet encouraged to be better. They're accepted, they're loved, they're forgiven. There's no if then. And we see this over and over in Leviticus, right? The grace is already always there. God is always ready to receive our sacrifice. Our sacrifice is our way of saying, it's, it's a way of representing the change of heart that we've already had. You know, we've repented, meaning we've turned back to God. And I mean, think about the prodigal son. You know, if there's someone there who's praying every day piously, God is there for him. Right? And if there's someone who has not even thought about God and who knows how long and then thinks of God, God is there for him too. Yeah. In just the same way. The idea is that we are already redeemed. And how do we become aware of that? How do we live in an awareness of that? And that's eternal life. Live like we know that that's the case. I, th I think that's what's meant by eternal life is this quality of life, not a quantity. You know, I remember one of my mentors told me to think without having anything to think about, that would be math. And I'm just not good at math, you know, <laughs> I'm good at the thinking when there's something to think about. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm a good philosopher, but I'm not a mathematician. And, my, and one of my mentors has challenged me and he says, look, you have to understand calculus to understand that eternity is not a really long time. And that's not even getting into what we're really talking about here, because <laughs> what we're really talking about here is eternal is his name. And eternal life is to live a life in Christ, as John, the most mystical of the gospel writers, puts it over and over again, in Christos, right? In Christ, a life in Christ is eternal life. And we enter into that life whenever we're ready by opening the door. He's always standing there knocking. Yeah. All we have to do is let him into our hearts. And so when our hearts are far from him, all we have to do is turn back, open up our hearts and receive him. And we are living in eternal life. We find him there within us in what he called his kingdom, the kingdom that is within us, in the depths of our own soul, our true self that is connected to God, that is that image of God, that imago Dei in us. And then there's the Zion society that's possible. The Jubilee idea sounds great. I mean, Zion sounds great. Look, something that's better than this. Let's just, what can we do right now? Ask yourself, what can I do? And who can I enlist? And how can I, you know, how can we team up? Because again, this is a group effort. What can we do together to move the ball forward? I mean, I remember when I was making a documentary on nonviolence, you know, answering the question is, hyperactive nonviolence realistic today. This is something Shiloh and I worked on with our friend Jared Hensley. And people would ask us, what does that even mean? <laughs> hyperactive nonviolence. And my answer was always, well, for us, it's making this documentary. You have to figure out what it means to you for yourself. And so what can we do? I don't know. We're doing this. Hmm. This takes a lot of time. This is a volunteer effort. And, and by the way, thanks to our volunteer editors, Right? Kyle Swingle, Tom Vogel, thanks to uh, Latter-day Peace Studies co-founders and you know tireless behind-the-scenes workers, Shiloh Logan and Lindsay Olin. Lindsay, again, is the, the heart of Latter-day Peace Studies. And so this is what we're doing. What can you do? You know, Christopher, you wanted to have a discussion also about scripture in general, right? Yeah. And this idea of 
of the Bible, your kids were asking you, okay, so if we're going to study the Bible, we study all the Bible. Why, why would we skip parts of the Bible? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So I, I think there's a lot of, of ways to approach this and, and discuss this. One of the things that came to mind is just the, the word Bible itself, because you know, we have to step back and say, well, okay, first off, what do you mean by the Bible, right? Because the word Bible really just connotes a library, a collection of different books. And so the question is, well, what books do you include in that Bible? And that's always been the question of, of any of the translations that have come up, you know, from King James Version to NRSV and, and whatever, what books are going to be included in this? And you know, what's in and what's out gets decided by each of the generations and iterations of those. So we have things that are considered apocryphal or, or pseudoepigraphal, things that are considered, you know, of, of less authority than other things and in different religious traditions. You know, within the Latter-day Saint tradition, I wouldn't say that it's like explicit codified or not, but just de facto culturally, the Old Testament definitely holds a place of lower authority scripturally than our other works. And so when we say, well, what are we going to include or not include, you know, the, the Old Testament isn't going to get as thorough of a treatment. Now we can have a discussion about whether that should be the case or not, but that certainly, there's certainly a lot of reasons that it is, whether it should or shouldn't be. Yeah, I'd like to say a few things about this. I was ready to end with, what can you do to to build Zion now. <laughs> well, we could take this and put it somewhere else, you know, at the beginning, if you want another podcast. But, but I'm glad, no, I'm glad that you, you certainly want to answer my own children's question. And the first thing I would say to them is you should study the whole Bible. Yeah. You should study the whole Bible and the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha and the, the wisdom literature and all of the sacred traditions of the world. All of them point to God in some way. God is incarnate in Christ. Any and all sacred texts are the penultimate word, and they're dealing with mysteries. They're dealing with things that actually can't be put into words. And some of the people writing these things have made this obvious. They've said, they've told us, you know, I can't really put this stuff into words, but here goes. I'm going to do my best, right? The process of canonization, some of the works that you mentioned that are pseudepigraphal are canonized. The process is rather arbitrary. You and I weren't involved in it. We know things today. Scholars know things today that the people making those decisions then didn't know. They also had their own political agendas. One of the things that is part of this is that there are people who, for political power, who are pursuing political power, and for those purposes, they had favorite books and, and favorite translations and you know less favorite books and less favorite translations. That's a reality. And some of the works that we thought were written by Paul, you know, we've just been able to figure out that, that they weren't, or that they weren't written by all, but by the same author, at least, right? The same thing goes for the, for the Torah. You know, we don't have something here where we think anymore that Moses wrote these things, you know, these are things that we've dealt with. So one thing I would say to, to the listeners, if you haven't heard our introduction to the Bible, we put a lot of time into that. I read 
30 books last December before recording that podcast with you, Ben. And I put in something like 12 hours to outlining this conversation so that it wouldn't be longer than the three hours that it was. <laughs> and, you know, we put a lot of time into that. You know, people, we, we have to remember that we're reading translations. That's another thing. There's a benefit to studying, if not the original language, at least going into word studies. You can do word studies. You can do this with, with tools like Bible Hub where you can look at interlinear translations, where you can click on the words, where you can find out the range of meanings, because most words don't have a one-to-one -one correspondence in another language. You can take the time to read, you know, not only the chapters that aren't assigned, but commentary. You can listen to our podcast. You can listen to Jabra Ghanem's Gospel Thoughts, you know. I told him about Blood, Guts, and Fire on Leviticus, and he said, that's interesting, I like Rob Bell. I love Rob Bell. You know, he's been an invaluable resource. I list, you know, on my personal website, ChristopherHurtado.com forward slash personal forward slash reading all of the books that I read, including those 30 on the Bible that I read in December. I just read another one. Great book. The most peculiar book is the title. And it mentions this other idea. You know, well, the, in the original, it says, you know, people like to say things like this about the Bible. In the original, what original, yeah. you know, I mean, which books are included in the original? What, what are we talking about? And by the way, even if we agree on the books, what we have are all these manuscripts and they, they're not all identical. Yep. You know, we have to make choices and decisions. And so the other thing about it is, is this idea that I mentioned that scripture isn't really these texts that we're talking about. So now that we've dealt with those texts, let's talk about scripture. Those are sacred texts. That's one thing. Scripture is something else. Scripture is this relationship that we have to the text. It's the interpretation that we give the text. And that's done in the chapter headings and the LDS standard works. And it's done in general conference talks. By the way, right or wrong. It's done in gospel doctrine class where we discuss it. In the Gospel Doctrine class and in the manual, the Come Follow Me manual, mm -hmm. right? I personally make it a point. We've mentioned this before, Ben. I think it's the same for you. We don't read the chapter headings because they are interpretive and they're not authoritative. Yeah. So we have to be able to look at different sources and ultimately we have to be able to get close to the source. And the source, the inspiration behind all of these texts, no matter who wrote them when, the, the goal really was to communicate a sense of an experience of the divine and to share that, right? To share that. And all of this, even Leviticus, it's how can you get close to God? And even if this isn't the way that we think, these, this isn't the mode. The mode of Leviticus isn't the mode that we use to get close to God. And I don't know if the mode that we have is better or not. I've tried to problematize that in this conversation, but <laughs> right. But there, there's more than one mode. There's even more than one way to Mormon, as I've taken the saying these days, even though we're, we're not Mormons anymore. We're Latter-day Saints, right? But you know what? Even in saying that, there's more than one way to Mormon. And so I can Mormon, right? I don't think God is offended personally. So I want to circle back a little bit to your kid's question, which, you know, we kind of zoomed out and said, this question maybe goes deeper than the asker of the question. 
realized. And it is actually a really, really profound question. And sometimes when you ask a question, you don't realize how profound the question is. (laughs) And so I kind of want to circle back and go back to maybe what the intention of the question was without realizing how profound it was. And the intention of the question might have been something specific like, how come the Come, Follow Me manual for this reading only has a few chapters? How come the manual skips chapters? And then later in the Old Testament, you know, from here on out, there's going to be quite a few that it skips, right? Why is it skipping the chapters? Even in Isaiah, I've taken to saying greater some of the words of Isaiah, apparently, yeah. because some of them are skipped. <laughs> skipped. Many of them are skipped, yeah. Yeah. And and ultimately, we can't give an authoritative answer to the question of why these aren't necessarily included, but I can give some practical guesses as to what's going on here. You know, just look at the length and complexity of the Old Testament. I mean, how much it took for us to dive into this book of Leviticus. If it were divided up, you know, into different reading segments and we covered every single chapter of the Old Testament, and you noted this as well, Chris, we really would need to expand our study of the Old Testament out to two years rather than one. And why not? Yeah, exactly. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that within the decision to keep the curriculum on a certain schedule and cycle, and there's, there's different reasons for this, you know, seminary is one of these. The schedule and cycle can be expanded. It, it can be. I'm just saying that. And how are we supposed to understand Matthew or Hebrews if we don't know the Old Testament? <laughs> Well, you're not supposed to get all of your understanding of the scriptures from the church. Ah, so I can study on my own. You absolutely should. Kids, read all of it. Fathers, teach your children. That's the idea. (laughs) I'm saying if you want to fit this curriculum within a classroom setting of church to be able to have some sort of a discussion, there are certain things you're going to have to make decisions about. Right. Right. But even then, Ben, you know, why I, I can I can see in some sense why not read all these chapters in Leviticus. But what I don't see is why are we reading the chapters that we read in these in this week in Exodus? You know, you have all these details. It, it's not that different from reading Leviticus. And by the way, they're related. See, that's what we've tried to bring out. And I think that's important. But it's, I, I certainly can't offer an opinion on why certain chapters are included. If I tried to say, well, it makes sense to include this one, there's stuff in there that it doesn't make sense sure. to include. Sure. And then there's chapters that I thought, why wasn't this chapter included? This one should have been included. I don't know what's going on with the curriculum. I have no idea. <laughs> sure. Read all of it. And, and dads, it's your duty. <laughs> to read all of it and teach your children. It's not up to the church. Remember, it was in the 80s that Stephen Covey wrote the book, The Divine Sinner, in which it was already old news. He's not saying it's old news. It's just the way that it was brought up. It shows up as old news that the church is scaffolding for the family, that gospel learning is supposed to be home-centered and church-supported. This isn't something new. Maybe you heard of it for the first time right before the pandemic, and boy, wasn't that on time and inspired. It's not new. That was old news in the 80s. Yeah. You know, occasionally there will be these kinds of things, these changes in, in policy or whatever, and, and people are like, oh, this is this new thing and all this. And, and I can't tell you how many times I've been like, I thought we were supposed to be doing this all along. Like, I remember when I was yes. a missionary and they were like, they came out, you know, it was like 
I was almost done with my mission. They came out with this preach my gospel manual, right? It's this new manual. It's the greatest thing ever. And they're like, hey, you know, you're not supposed to memorize and recite the discussions anymore. And I'm like, I, I, I mean, weren't we supposed to be just giving them in our own words anyway? Like, and I was always confused by this thing like, oh, don't do that anymore. Do it this way. And I was like, I was always told that the memorization was a way for you to learn certain phrases of the language and understand, you know, how the concepts fit together. Not that you're supposed to sit there and recite the memorization, but for some reason, people got that concept that they were supposed to do that. So when this idea came out, oh, you know, you're supposed to prepare these and, and say them in your own words. I was like, I thought that's what we were supposed to be doing all along. So there's all kinds of things like this that happen from time to time, and there'll be more. And part of it is because it's, it's very natural to get within that mindset of, hey, this is the way that it's written. And so we have to always do it this way. And so when something is revised or changed, like, oh, this is a new way of doing things. And it really reminds me of when Christ came, gave the Sermon on the Mount, and, and everybody's like, oh, this is a whole new way of doing things. And, and Jesus was kind of saying, actually, this is the way you're supposed to be doing it before. You just didn't get it, you know? <laughs> he was quoting Leviticus. Yeah. <laughs> Love your neighbor. Yeah. Well, Ben, this has been a great conversation. It's always a pleasure to have these conversations with you. I tell you, My sometimes question. I really struggle with the text and, and I somehow, I always feel better when, when I talk to you about it. I'm really glad to have this opportunity to have these conversations with you and to go through this text. It's something I've always wanted to do to get more familiar with the Old Testament. I just want to understand Matthew and the Hebrews. And so thank you. This all has a, has a means to an end. Huh? Yeah. Thank you. And no, there's more to it. I mean, again, there, there are issues here in Leviticus that, that aren't really, there's something for you in Leviticus. There really is. There's something for us today in Leviticus. I, I encourage you. I invite you to read it. I encourage you to read it. Hopefully this has been a helpful introduction. Thank you for listening. Thank you again to our editors and, and to Latter-day Peace Studies co-founders, Shiloh and Lindsay. And thank you, Ben. Thanks, Christopher. <laughs>